An all-new episode of the Mitchell, Fon, and Jeremy White Show. Tuesday at noon. Available wherever you stream. Uh, look, let's get right into this. We don't got a lot of time. A young Guns Door kicking off on February 20th in Denver. Hitting Vegas, L.A., Chicago, New York City. Of course, the Danforth Music Hall in Toronto on March 24th. The only Canadian city. Hopefully, we'll get them to Montreal at some point. Uh, tickets are on sale now. Ticketmaster.com. Go check it out. Welcome, Mark from Dirty Honey and Wolfgang Van Halen from Mammoth WVH. There we are. Howdy. What an intro. Best intro I've heard. Oh, it's almost <laughs> like, I'm a prof- it's like I'm a professional, right? Um, John, uh, I wish John was here because I was going to bust his balls about being on tour with Wolf because, I mean, two monster guitar players. But, uh, Mark, do you, do you think at some point we'll see Wolf and John get up on stage and do like a guitar battle on this tour? Wolf told me he's not getting uh, on stage with any band other than his own unless he plays drums, so... <laughs> Dude, there you go. Come on, get him on. Get him on something. It's not like Why you're playing to the. Look, you're not playing to the Pro Tools rig. Nothing's locked to the grid. Just get up and yeah, jam. Exactly. We don't. You know. I mean, we'll go. We'll mess. We'll bang around. I'm sure there'll be some sound check uh, uh, shenanigans. Yeah. At some <laughs> yeah, point. Yeah. Now there's going to be all kinds of speculation. Oh, I wonder what song Wolf's going to play on drums with Dirty Honey. Is it going to be a cover? Is it going to play Panama? Oh, what's going on? Um, so talk about this tour. I mean, first of all, I love the name of it, Young Guns, because I mean, I love the fact that you guys are genuinely keeping guitar music alive for the longest time. You listen to radio. I mean, aside from the rock stuff, you listen to rock stations, all the classic rock stations just keep to the old shit, the classic stuff. You listen to rock alternative. Everybody's dipping into the programming of drum loops and this and that. And, you know, you guys are, I mean, well, if you listen to the record, it's a real drum kit. It's not the same addictive drum samples you hear on everybody else's records. You listen to Dirty Honey, you can tell it's a band performing. Uh, talk a little bit about the sound and how important that is to your music, just being organic. Well, I think that's kind of the whole impetus of of this of the Young Guns tour is that you know um, we had done a, a few shows uh, and uh, watching them, it's like they're that's just them. They're doing it, yeah. and that's that's a one one of the biggest proponents of, of of my live shows that i'm proud of is that you know we're not using tracks where i i got a damn keyboard on stage and i only play it for like two verses of two <laughs> songs in an hour right. and a half set so it's like i'm not going to use tracks um and uh yeah it was it just kind of that's just what's really important to me and i'm, I'm happy to to be a part of this tour where, where two bands are getting it done you know getting it done live you know um Aside from that, uh, tickets are on sale now. Hidden Vegas, LA, Chicago. Uh, real quick, this week, a, a different kind of truth. Obviously, celebrating its 10th anniversary this week. And, uh, you know, you did a really great article with Ultimate Classic Rock, kind of going through song by song. There's a lot of rumors going around about that record and that your dad actually recorded a version of the record using his vintage Marshalls and the 5153s. And that mix is sort of sitting somewhere, just collecting dust, never going to see the light of day. Uh, Did he really use some vintage Marshalls or? I think he whipped it out to to test it for a song or two, and then it was like, eh, you know, I'm I'm past that. Let's 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 use what you know. He his taste obviously changed throughout time. I remember he brought it for for one day, but no, there's not. We're not hiding some mix. We're not hiding twenty extra songs. Like what you got was it, except for one song we never even finished. So, wow. Yeah, you know how just fucking crazy fans are online. It's like just the fact yes. that I mentioned that they'd be like, "Oh, he's lying." Yeah, <laughs> why would I know, right? <laughs> you know, my whole thing with that is like, why break up? I mean, look, you got the EVH brand. You're trying to sell new guitars. Try and sell some amps. I mean, why go back to that old tone? I mean, you know, stick with the modern stuff. 
Oh yeah. I'll never forget. Um, when we met, uh, Eddie Vedder and Mike McCready came to a show and, uh, Mike was like, you know, I've, I, you know, th- that first album was so, so important to me. Uh, and Tad was like, ah, oh, the guitar sounded like shit. <laughs> and you could see him like break. <laughs> and it was just like, dad, dad's taste just changed over the years. And he, you know, he, he was always a tone chaser. So, yeah. Did you That's hear a- that anecdote on Stern from Eddie? No. What? Oh yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll get you that clip somehow. Well, <laughs> it's definitely, he talks about that day. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's awesome. That's so yeah. funny. There's a funny, uh, actually talking about your dad and Howard Stern, dude, one of my favorite clips ever, like from being a, a son and a dad that loves to embarrass him wherever we go somewhere. It's always like my dad's the star and I'm just kind of like, Hey, what's up? The funniest thing that I've ever heard in the interview is your dad was on the phone, like Stern in like 2006 before the 07 tour. And he was like, yeah, so uh, your son, Wolf, like how old is he? Ah, he's a teenager. Uh, he's in the bathroom. You know, he's, he's in there for like 40 minutes at a time. And well, Howard's like, what do you think he's beating off in there? And your dad's like, well, he's definitely not taking a 40 minute shower. <laughs> and I was like, that's such a teenage, like dad story, like dad thing to do. <laughs> I, I took my Game Boy everywhere with me. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, when I was 13, I definitely had the iPhone already. 40 minute showers. Yeah. Dude, I, I didn't have a phone in, in, in high school, man. It, like I had a flip phone. I, if kids with iPhones these days in, in high school, they're so lucky. Yeah. The old school razors, you know, yeah. Motorola's. So with Mark and John being the guitar duos, you're kind of like the guy that does it all. Is there a little bit of competition, Mark, between you and John and Wolf? I mean, it's, I feel like this tour is going to be a little competitive every night. Like, you know, see who's got more energy, you know? <laughs> well, I think, uh, you know, I've said before, like music isn't like, um, it's not competitive in nature. I think um everybody outside of the artist makes it competitive. It's like your chart positions, your sales. Like I don't think artists genuinely give a shit about any of that stuff. I think they care about writing and performing music, writing and performing music that is, is honest and true and exciting to them. And, and then when you get on stage performing it really well, so like the competition is really within yourself. It's, it's not, you know, I, I didn't I didn't write or perform or any <laughs> of Wolf's stuff. So I, I can't, you know, speak to that, obviously. But I think um, if I come off stage and have a great show, it, it feels like I won some sort of like something within myself. You know, when you're in studio and writing and recording the music, is it always in the back of your mind? Like, oh, shit, like, you know, this is a really hard lick or this is a hard note to hit. Like, how am I going to do this live? Is there any of that? Do you take yeah. that into consideration? Uh yeah and usually the other guys will like push me to just come on just fucking do it it's awesome man (laughs) dude same same with me elvis will be like he's like i'm like i'll be like how the hell am i gonna pull this off live like this is so hard and he's like that's that's a different wolfie a different wolfie's gonna be worrying about that yeah 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 we're 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 in the studio now let's get it done (laughs) i will say when those moments come up on a live show like they they go okay most of the time Oddly enough, it's almost. I've yet like to have an instant. So yeah, knock on wood. I'll have a puberty you. moment in the middle of hitting a high note. It's like ah, like just breaks. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Wolf, talking about your record, one of my favorite. Actually, it was my favorite guitar solo of 2021. Uh, Talk and walk the guitar solo on that. I love the fact that you're performing that song live. Talk. Why? Why did you leave it off the record and make it just like a Japanese bonus track? Because that song, to me, I mean, it's. I listened to the record obviously multiple times and I feel like that song's kind of like 
it encompasses the entire sound together. And I was like, well, it's just it was de- delegated to a bonus track. Yeah, it's funny for for me. It kind of felt more uh, outside of the sound. It had more of that sort of bluesy, rocky feel, and that's very not very much not what the the core of the album is. I think the core of the album is much more like Epiphany, uh, you know, or like You're to Blame. But uh, but yeah, no, that's why it's like I still wanted to include it to some degree. And you know, uh, Japan always wants a bonus tracks, so it just kind of seemed of to 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 fit. It's <laughs> always the thing. When I first listened to the album, I was like. Um, I was like, damn, this is almost like the rock Taylor Swift breakup album in a way, because it's very emotional. I mean, they're talking about an ex-girlfriend and stuff. Like, have you have you ever like has she gotten in touch and you said, like, oh wow, yeah, congrats on all the songs you wrote about me? Yeah, no, it's it's funny. Like, I I guess uh there's not one specific person that that it's about. I've I've had many people in my life take take advantage of me, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh so I think in when when I uh when I write music, they kind of uh uh, mold into one person that I kind of write at, you know, you don't have a list where it's like Taylor. It's like, okay, this one's about Harry. This one's yeah, about no, Jake. I, like, I don't. <laughs> talk, talk about that guitar solo really quickly. Cause I mean, you listen to the record. I mean, there's lots of incredible highlights guitar wise. I mean, it's all guitar, but that solo specifically, it's got everything. It's got from the tapping to the bluesy style lick. Yeah. I was, I was happy to, uh, to do the little, tappy bend thing that dad always did i i, I made sure to fit that in yeah. you know uh i thought that was a really fun thing to to put in there as kind of a little ode to pop in that solo. that's a really fun solo i like that one yeah uh it's gonna be really cool to be able to go to a show and see some eva champs on stage i mean last time you performed in montreal was in august of 2015 the last van halen tour i was there front row crying and you pointed at me and laughed at me as you saw me crying uh it was an incredible <laughs> show <laughs> um when you guys do in fact hit the road um are you like what's what's the bubble like are you guys doing the meet and greets you want to hang out with fans or are you just kind of like still scared of that You're like no stay away keep your germs to yourself it's very much a, a bubbly sort of situation but it's it's always uh flexible but you know it's there's so many unknowns about uh the world and how it is that you know uh with a respiratory illness going around i certainly would like to keep singing <laughs> Dude, I just had it like two weeks ago, triple vax. Still, like two weeks later, my lung capacity. I'll be on the air in the middle of a break and I'll have to come up for air. Like it was never the case before. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. John and Mark, you guys need to make sure that you have matching John Vervedos outfits on stage. And then Wolf, you need to get the entire band, like do like a Shania Twain thing, have everybody like matching in some <laughs> kind of goofy thing. <laughs> That'd be great. Mark, break out the VIP John Vervedos card. Bring Wolf shopping. <laughs> is that even your vibe, Wolf? I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm very much. I mean, a black T-shirt for the guy. Obviously, yeah. they do. They do have black T-shirts, but uh, yeah, but get you in a, get one of those John Vervedos scarves. We'll hat, avoid. We'll avoid. Hat. We'll avoid spending two fifty on a black tee. <laughs> you know, be a really I funny. It was a very cheap black shirt. I just, I don't know. I'm really funny gimmick one it. night. You guys should trade sets. Wolf's band will play with the Dirty Honey amps and gear backline, and then Dirty Honey will go do the mammoth set. <laughs> Good, buddy. Uh, I'll take February, it. Yeah. February 20 kicks off in Denver. March 24th, Danforth Music Hall. Uh, catch Dirty Honey and Mammoth WVH. Going to be a great gig. Uh, Wolf, during the recording of Different Kind of Truth, did you ever go to your dad and say, hey, you know, why don't you break out the old harmonizer, go for more of the balanced kind of guitar tone? Or was he just so past that that he didn't want to revisit anything? I know there was one specific thing where um, 
it was right before the breakdown in in blood and fire uh where i i told him to do this little uh tap harmonic thing that reminded me very much of a balance era like belichitherium or something but that was probably the most you know i, I let him do his thing it was it was much more important for me to 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 make sure the songs were constructed and flowing well right I, I just got off Zoom with Steve I about like four hours ago. And we were talking about writing with Dave and how just prolific he is, you know, come up with cool lyrics. What was it like collaborating with Dave in a creative sense as opposed to just going on stage and playing the gold? The only really creative um, collaboration uh, was during Stay Frosty. Um, uh, throughout the rest of it, it was very much, uh, you know, we'd go in in the morning, record, and he'd go in at night uh, to record his stuff. But Stay Frosty was the big question mark that I kind of puzzle pieced the song structure of it it was a, de- a a demo that dave had and that was it was really it was really fun with this obviously the debut record you did everything on your own uh at some point do you see yourself maybe bringing in some outside collaborators getting like a desmond child or a bob rock to produce co-write some stuff i mean in a way elvis basquette kind of is that to me you know he lets me kind of fly and do my thing but he in the studio he really feels like that that sort of other half that that i i need to help me stay motivated and focused on the right things keeps you on the track yeah um mark when are you guys collaborating with mutt lang and when is that record coming out <laughs> i would love to that's that would be on the that's definitely on the short list of like the top three mutt lang jimmy page and man who else would who else would be our dave cobb we already did that was cool um yeah, yeah which walker <laughs> yeah era jack douglas would be sweet um yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of them I would that that are the, the the dream team I would say Nick Dadia though he's no slouch either I gotta say, dude I mean there's so many incredible rock producers these days I mean you even look at Andrew Watt and the stuff he did with Ozzy and yeah I mean the, the rock records are starting to sound like rock records again I mean the fact that everybody's not afraid of a little bit cannonball snare drum again I, I'm all about it you know I think COVID actually kind of helped um, facilitate more people like learning an instrument honestly I, that that's what i've at least heard from the the gibson people we talked to is like there's no stock anymore covid people just instead of playing guitar hero they played yeah. a guitar and uh it's it's honestly been a good thing for for music in general well if at some point do you see yourself maybe opening up the 5150 studio as a as a place where bands can go and record or is that going to forever be the church not anytime soon. I mean, it's it's a home studio. I don't think people realize that it's not a public space. You know, no. it's on private property, and it's a it's very much a, a a protected area. As much as people would like to be able to walk in and <laughs> take whatever they want, um, but It'll uh, be on the TMZ map, guided tours at fifty one. Yeah, like. exactly. Like it's uh, yeah, no, it's very much a, a private home studio. As much as uh, as important as it is to some people, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, Young Guns Tour running out of time. Just real quick, uh, kicking off on February 20th. Get your tickets now. It's going to be a fantastic night of awesome live rock and roll. Raw, so raw, it's still bleeding in your <laughs> face. Rock, uh, go and check it out. Dirty Honey, Mammoth WVH, going to be a great tour. Um, running out of time, but this is really great. I had so many more questions that I would love to ask you, Wolf. We'll do this again. We'll make next it a little time, bit yeah. longer. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Mark, always great to see you. I'll wear my hat for you next time. <laughs> we'll see you in Toronto, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to come over for that gig. It's going to be fun. I um, wish we were playing uh, Montreal too, but uh, we'll be dude, back. You got to get back here, man. Love that town. Yeah. All right, guys. I'll see you later. Thanks a lot for your time. Be good, man.
an all-new episode of the Mitch LaFon and Jeremy White Show. Tuesday at noon. Available wherever you stream. We are speaking with Dan Reed of the Dan Reed Network, the new album, Let's Hear It for the King, available in June anywhere. Music is sold and streamed. Pick it up when you can. And as we say here in Montreal, along with the dogs in the background, bonjour, Dan. How are you? I'm good. Bonjour to you. I'm very good. Yeah, so let's let's get into this album. I've been lucky enough or privileged enough to have an advanced stream of this thing, and it is spectacular. And I will tell you, if the song Starlight is not a massive hit, I just don't understand the record-buying public anymore because it, it is brilliant. It's done really well on uh, YouTube and uh, the sta- uh, Planet Rock in the UK. It's right. stacked. It's been there for three months now, I think, playing. So whether it'll get picked up by any stations in the U.S. or not, uh, one will never know. Hopefully, you can, we hope. So let's start off with, talk to me about making music in, in or for 2022. Are you sort of going back and thinking, okay, I got to go back to what we did with Bruce Fairburn and we got, uh, what we did in the early days? Or are you thinking, hey, we got no shackles here. We can do whatever the heck we want. Talk, talk to me about putting it together and making it, uh, it for 2022. Uh, yeah, that's been a, it's an interesting concept of where uh, we, we decided that what, what is it that brought us together in, as a band before we even met uh, Polly Graham and Bruce and Bill, Bill Graham and all those folks, what we were doing in the clubs, like, what did we like about what we did back then? And so we actually took one song, well, two pieces of two songs from our 1986 days, our club days, 1985-86, and revamped pieces of it just to kind of have that on this new record. Um, A song called Fire in the House and a song called Mind and Body, which I stole some lyrics from, Um, not so much the groove, but just a few lyrics here and there and rhythms. And that was like the setting point of where we were like, okay, let's start there. Now let's write uh, 11 other songs along with these two and uh, have them work with this with these two songs and have it be a cohesive, heavy record. We wanted to do something a little heavier because we've been playing a lot of live shows before COVID hit and we were really getting into the flow of that. So we thought, let's make this new album something that we can really, you know, sink our teeth into on, on the stage. Yeah, and, and it, it absolutely worked out. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, the inception of the band because you're signed by Derek Schulman, who is absolutely you know, iconic in the music business, signed all kinds of great bands. He's working yep. with Bon Jovi, he's working with Cinderella, he's doing all this stuff. Then you're managed by Bill Graham. Wow. Yes. I mean, Bill Graham is the West Coast. I mean, he, yeah, he's the entire West Coast. Uh, talk to me about that, because you, you were set up for massive success, and then it took a turn. Um, how did you get involved with Derek and, and Bill? That started just being the, that club band I was telling you about. And we were packing out places in Seattle and Portland. Right. Um, a lot of the grunge bands before that grunge scene broke in 1990 were friends of ours who come to our shows. We had a, a lot of good camaraderie with the other musicians. We felt like we were doing something a little unique where we were mixing in those Marshall guitars with uh, synthesizer funk and, and Melvin's thumb on the bass right um, and then dan pred grew up listening to like rush and dixie dregs the drummer um and so he was a really progressive hard hitter and um so that combination of everything just kind of seemed to make everything work you know as on a different level 
So it brought the attention of a few labels that came and saw us. First, they turned us down. There was somebody from Geffen that came and saw us and said that uh, <laughs> they would sign us if we had one less black guy in the band. Really? Because thought, yeah, because they thought that would be a hard sell. And it turned out they're... Well, I, I do, they're let right. me ask you about that, because yeah. it did seem to be a hard sell. You know, I, I do the, the the rock show, and I always post on this day, this album was released and all that. And oh, yeah, cool. I, I struggle daily to find either a female rock artist or a, a black artist. And I'm, I'm really down to just posting about, in you know, living color every so often. Right. And it, it's it's... I never noticed it until I started doing this. And then I noticed it. And I went, wow, there's like Joan Jett, Lita Ford, Living Color. That's sort of my my others. And and it's it's so was it really? Was there really a, a racism? Yeah, there was racism, but I think it's not like I hate black people or white right. people evil type racism. It was right. more about they just didn't understand it. It didn't click in their brain. Um, with Living Color, that track was had that kind of Led Zeppelin riff to it, and it was four black guys doing it, not a mixed race band. Right. So it was very, very different, very unique. And that that and that first video was so awesome that it really pushed that over the edge, right? Um, same thing with Teen Spirit with Nirvana. That video alone broke right. that whole scene, right? right? But you had bands like Sly and the Family Stone that were multiracial, really cool band. Uh, Mother Love Bone, or sorry, not Mother Love Bone, but uh, Mother's Finest. Right. Yeah. Mother's Finest, Mother Love Bone, one of my favorite, Andrew was just a pure yeah. soul. Um, but yeah, uh, Mother's Finest, there was a few multiracial bands that were doing that stuff. And then you had uh, Fishbone come out and then you had uh, Chili Peppers and Faith No More and Extreme and the Electric Boys. And there was this whole kind of funk rock movement. The Electric Boys, there you go. <laughs> You're going to love that. <laughs> That was post Mother's Finest, you know, so there was some racism in the metal world in the sense oh, of okay. like uh, I, the, just looking at us, people thought we were funkier than our actual song was. So you have this kind of visual thing, residue of what people thought was in each category. And yeah. thank God that's all gone now. I think that's completely erased. So. Yeah, it's, it mostly is. But but b bands back then really were about how good you looked. I mean, you, you look at Poison and Bon Jovi, both bands that I love, but I yeah. think they became successful, especially in Bon Jovi's case, because John's a good looking dude. You know, had he looked like me, I don't think we'd be talking sexism? about Bon Jovi. Pardon me? Is that reverse sexism? Uh, yeah, listen, it must be there, but, but there, are, there is a certain amount of uh, look that's, uh, that's associated to what you were doing back then. Well, you know, I, you knew it. I'm not sure if you're aware, but in the middle of that looks era, yeah. um, right in uh, early 1990, uh, I shaved all my hair off just to kind of make a statement. That, <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> I went, screw it. I'm shaving my yeah. hair off. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was kind of just uh, an experiment uh, to see if that was true because I never wore spandex, for example. I did wear a little eyeliner in the club days, but for the most part, I just tried to rock and roll and, I think I was one of the first guys that wore jeans with holes in, on, in them on stage. And then that became a huge fad and yeah. <laughs> it's crazy stuff. So everything, I tried to break the rules as much as possible, musically first, then looks wise second. And then by the time I realized that uh, the world of music had changed in a different direction in a, that dark elemental 
a deep intention direction with the grunge scene, Seattle scene, that uh, I just decided to walk away from the whole scene for a while. I thought it was going to be a couple of years, but it ended up being 12, 13 years. Um, I'm going to get to that, but I just want to quickly, before I get to that, uh, since I'm from Canada, you did the first uh, EP or album over at Little Mountain Studios. The first album with Bruce Fairburn, Mike Fraser Engineering. Bruce Fairburn, God rest his soul, of course, and Mike Fraser, who is a mixing genius. Yes. Um, talk to me a little bit about that because it is known for the drum sound, that, that, that big drum sound. Yes. Uh, what was that experience like? And of course it was also known for the guys to hang around. So you'd be making an album and then you'd have like, you know, Brian Adams singing backup vocals, or you'd have Mark LaFrance singing backup vocals, or, you, or you'd have Nikki Six. or, um, quickly talk to me about that experience in recording in Vancouver with the drum sound. Yeah, you know, they had this thing called the loading bay up there where they would set all the drums up next to the door of the big concrete loading bay. And they'd put a bunch of microphones out there and then they'd close mic the kick, you know, but they have the whole drum set basically (laughs) facing this door (laughs) and the kick drum just going straight out into into the loading bay. And that's where you got all that really beautiful, natural, big reverb that uh, I think Bob Rock and Mike Fraser both came up with that together. Yep. Mike was assisting then. Um, Permanent Waves, I guess, yep. where they started banging that drum like that. Um, that first Bon Jovi, second Bon Jovi. Um, ACDC did some stuff up there with Bob. Yep. But yeah, if you think about the records that came out of that space, man. It's Dr. Feelgood. I mean, come oh, on. It's, yeah. it sold masses, but... But what was it like for you? I mean, did you did you get the full experience with with the boys? And was Bob working with you at all? No, Bob didn't work with us. He was on the other studio for a while on one project, but it was uh, I think it was one of those bands that didn't hang out that much. I can't remember who it was, but we had like John Webster who played keyboards on some of Bon Jovi's stuff, play on our record. Uh, awesome, awesome idea, man. Right. Um, the beginning of Ritual, that jungle drum rhythm, mm-hmm. that was all Bruce Fairburn's idea. He goes, hey, there's a, a percussion group up at the college, and there's an African gentleman that's running the whole uh, percussion class. Maybe we should go up there and talk with him. And we went and met him, had some, I think we had lunch or coffee, and then invited him down to the studio, and he brought a van full of drums. And we got everybody, including the assistant engineer, Ken Lomas, everybody just hitting instruments out there, all of our guitar techs and everybody. Um, But then we had heard after we finished that session, we had heard that somebody like Kiss, maybe, or Aerosmith had done a similar thing, but not with this gentleman, but with a similar amount of drums. But they they brought in all the strippers from the different clubs and used their (laughs) bottoms for for slap drums. And I was like, oh, my God, it's, what what world have we got ourselves into? But thankfully, we didn't go that direction. We used actual African drums. Yeah, but you see. Whole, but the whole experience, I mean, you would hear uh, <laughs> people would come in and visit and listen to the record. And, you know, Derek was there and Bill Graham. And just to have their energy um, around our band at that time was uh, it's hard to describe that feeling when your dreams as a farm boy in South Dakota start becoming a reality. And you... Uh, you know, pinching yourself isn't enough. It's, it becomes this kind of surreal thing. To, but also at the same time, it, you become really focused on uh, deserving it. 
like working hard, working really, really yeah. hard, deserving it. And I never partied or drank or anything during those days. It was right. after I left the band became my right. Party. It was after your basically your run with the Rolling Stones, where you come home and have nothing to do, and then you get in trouble. Yeah, but it, for me, it was like the band splitting and then getting into like theater acting into the minds of this acting world where, you know, smoking weed and then I'll oh, do a line and then I'll oh, have some drinks and oh, now I know this character, you know, that kind of stuff. That's right. where it started. And then when I bought a nightclub, I went into full yeah, club. Yeah. yeah, it was called the Ohm. It was a great party. A lot of good times there. <laughs> All right. Um, so let me fast forward a little bit then. And we'll get back to you. You open for Bon Jovi. You open for the Rolling Stones. You, you do all this stuff. Or, or, or you were written about in the Rolling Stone, I should say. Um, you, you, you come back, you take this time off, you, you get into trouble. Um, was it just going to be like a, like we're taking a couple of years off and we'll, we'll get back together? Or, man, we're not getting the success we have. We, we just need to call it a day. And you say, okay, I'm going to go into construction. I'm going to open this club. I did that, yeah. <laughs> you, you did all that stuff, and all of a sudden, you're you're, you're sort of off the mark for like twenty years. You you you, you, you know you sort of talk to me about about those times and and how did it get away from you so fast? Well, it was an interesting thing that happened after the band. Uh, after I left the band, this is like '93. Um, I started a record label. Um, released about five or six local bands on that. This is before the party days. And then I wrote a, a few different feature film scripts, produced a feature that uh, produced and edited, did some acting in it. And that was a great experience. And then when we were getting ready to do the second feature film, this was all the theater days were all in there too as well. I did three plays in Portland to kind of try to get the acting chops up. Um, the nightclub, bought the nightclub in 1999. So there was six years there where being very productive, but other things without music. Right. But then uh, the club years, I was there about three years, 99 to 2002. And uh, over that course of three years is where, you know, started partying every weekend. Then it was Thursday through Saturday, then Wednesday through Saturday. And by that last year, it was partying every day, you know, wow. and, and having a great time, but getting thinner and not getting a lot of sleep. And then my father got ill with uh, cancer and I had wow. to stay home and take care of him. And that's what sobered me up. So I got clean after he passed away. Um, mm -hmm. And that's when I did construction work for a year and then went off to India and lived in a monastery for a year. <laughs> well, that's what, yeah, I, I want to talk to you about that because you actually interviewed the Dalai Lama. Yeah, that was in 1992. And when I decided in 2003, after the construction work that I wanted to go somewhere to just kind of chill, I realized it was Dharamsala, the same place we had interviewed the Dalai Lama a decade earlier. Um, and that was uh, just what I needed, you know, just what the doctor ordered, you know, meditating every day, uh, only having candlelight. There was no yeah. hot water. Um, you're painting, you're cleaning, cooking, gardening, and uh, doing a lot of meditations, four or five hours of meditation every day. So, well, talk to me about that, that spiritual path, uh, about that spiritual path, because that, it's quite a story. I mean, I mean, you think about it. You're, you've got, you know, Bill Graham, you know, your Little Mountain Studio opening for Bon Jovi, Rolling Stones, blah blah blah. You've got a nightclub. You're the party boy, <laughs> and then suddenly you go, enough. Yeah. And you go down this spiritual path. Um, were you at a point where 
and, and maybe it's dark to say this, but were you at a point where you were suicidal and just said, F it, I, I got to get out of this. I got to, I got yeah. to, I got to bail. That's a good question. I, I wouldn't say that I was ever suicidal, but I was so self-destructive that I could have died any day. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. So I was playing with suicide constantly right. without thinking it, thinking of it in a negative way. <laughs> right. So I woke up one day after not sleeping for three nights um, wow. in my, my backyard. Don't remember how I got there. And my dog was <laughs> licking my face going, when are you going to take me for a walk or feed me, whatever, you know? Um, and it was that day, I think it was literally maybe three or four weeks later that my dad was diagnosed with cancer. God. And grant, granted, he lived a good long life, 92 years old. When he 92? Yeah, still putting up Christmas tree lights on the house at 91. So okay. I have that crazy work ethic in my head that uh, I have to deal with. <laughs> my dad actually turns 92 this year. Oh, my God. So you're right there, you know. I, I'm right also, there, yeah. We had a long time with our dads, you know, and our, my mom, yeah, she yeah. Another decade after him, so. Uh, and I'll just I'll just quickly turn to I'll just give you my dad's story. You know, they he has dementia and all this. And at Christmas they said, you know, you got to prepare and we got to get the will and we got to. And they said, oh, we feel so sorry. And I went, feel sorry. I have yeah. friends who had dads die when they were thirty. Yeah. I got sixty extra years. Yeah. Don't be sorry. It, that's a yeah. good long life. You know. That's you know. A very good way to look at it, sir. Well, yeah. I mean, listen, how many friends do you know where you go, oh, my dad died when I was 15. My dad died when I was there. Tons. Tons. I got 90. 92. Yeah. yeah. We, we, uh, we lucked out. There, yeah, for sure. You know. Absolutely. So, so when you, when you pull up stake and, and move over to India and you, I mean, how drastic was it? Did you just sort of just sell everything? You sold the club, you sell the house, you 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 sell your knickknacks and just say, I'm out? That's exactly what I did. And wow. I put, uh, I gave my mom a, a grip of money to make sure she didn't have to worry about anything over her social security payments every month. Wow. And I took just enough to know that I could live away for a year in India. I kind of knew what the costs were going to be. Um, but then it became cheaper because I lived at the monastery for 11 months out of wow. my 13 months there. So it was, um, yeah, that was a great experience. But I I started writing music again. Yeah. <laughs> These Tibetan monks wanted me to start teaching them rock and roll songs that they had heard <laughs> on the radio, but didn't ever understood the lyrics. That's so funny. Like, we Will Rock You by Queen was the first one a monk. We were out washing our clothes in the stream, and he goes, Dan, do you know this song that goes, Oh my God. I I can suddenly see a Bollywood scene where you're washing your clothes, and then the music starts, and everybody starts dancing. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, it's hilarious. I didn't remember all the lyrics to the song, so I went to this internet cafe, and Darmsala printed them out. And so I taught him, We Will Rock You. And then I bought this little acoustic guitar to teach him some songs. and Pretty soon I started writing songs. I, my first song writing after a decade, I guess, was uh, a song for them called On Your Side. It was a thank you letter to the monks for allowing right. me in their circle. And that's a song that was, was on my first solo album that came out. That came out. It, it, yeah. All right. So so now we're in 2022. You've got the new album coming out, which I've heard and it, it, it's fantastic. I love it. I actually pre-ordered it from your website. I loved it so much. Oh my not, God. Thank you. And I'm not kidding. Appreciate that, Mitch. Thanks, brother. Hey, you got to support. Um, <laughs> how do you look back at your, at your path, you know, from now? I mean, 
you look back at everything you did with the bill and this and, and the monks and are you happy where you where you are or do you think man i should have done that man we should have just toured through the 90s man we should have just never broken up the band man i should have just stayed a, a, in construction how, how do you sort of take stock yeah, of it a, now i don't really think about it that way i'm always kind of looking at each week should be kind of a new adventure um right. i do have some regrets more it's more about how i left people hanging um throughout those different life changes which thankfully most people I've uh, apologized to properly and become friends again with. Um, there's still a couple people uh, in the management area <laughs> that you know, Bill passed. You know, the interesting thing is that Bill and I talked about a week before he passed away in that horrible crash. Mm-hmm. Um, and we hadn't talked for a couple of years because we went with Q Prime with Cliff and Peter. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah that ro- right before the Rolling Stones tour and stuff, you know. And... I felt bad because I really loved working with Bill one-on-one. And then whenever he got busy with other stuff, I felt like I didn't have that same relationship with him. Right. And it was either I needed to demand more time from him, which would make his other projects, which are so much more important than the network in my eyes, um, have him to take time away from those things. So I was forced with a decision and I told Bill, look, man, I don't want you to take time away from these other, other folks, but I also miss you and I need your advice more than we're getting at the time. Right. But so we didn't talk for a couple of years cause huh. that's just what you do when you split up. But then we did talk about a week before he died. He had just done that film with uh, Bugsy with yeah. uh, Warren Beatty. Uh, and he did wonderful acting in there. And that was at that time I was also studying acting and doing this theater stuff in Portland. And so we had a good chat about acting and about, uh, you know, where things we, where we were at in our life. And he said he was really looking forward to focusing on becoming an actor more. Wow. Now, I don't know how much more time you have, but I'll, I'll just give you a couple more questions. In terms of sure. the acting and the writing and the uh, – it shows, of course, that you're a creative person. Is there the same sort of creative thrill from writing a song as to writing a script or as to acting – or are they two very different creative planes and, and you get a different high, for the lack of a better word, yeah. from, from doing one or the other? It's interesting. I've never, I think, I think the high is the same with writing music, writing screenplays, acting, editing, right. uh, looking at a, a, a shot that you storyboarded and it turned out even better, you know, that right. kind of high. Um, is the same as like, oh, that melody, I, I've heard it before, but I haven't. Right. You know, that familiar melody that no one's quite sang this way yet, or a turn of a <laughs> phrase that you've heard a million times, but not quite said in that way. There's that kind of creative high. But each one of those crafts is different in that you're painting with a, you know, airbrush or, you know, <laughs> spray paint, or you're painting with a fine brush. Right. And there's these little things that the technique of everything is thrilling as well. So you have that constant. That's why when you ask me about how do I look back at all the stuff, I, I don't look back so much because I'm always trying to, fo- now I'm trying to learn how to do after effects in uh, Adobe Premiere. You know, that's oh, wow. my, it's my but, dream while I'm you- painting over here in this other room. <laughs> so, oh, shit. That, that's, that's great. Um, and uh, here, I'll start wrapping up. Uh, I'm a big Def Leppard fan. And oh, apparently dude. they play into your career 
in the sense that they put out Hysteria, an album that cost whatever, five or six million. Yes. They put out Women, they put out Animal, the album is sort of stiffing because people aren't responding to the singles. And the record company basically says, the hell with this, we're cutting promotion for everybody. And your album is sort of wrapped up in the, we're not promoting new music. Look, you know, <laughs> how true yeah. is that story? And and is it fair to say that maybe Def Leppard sort of cost you your career? I mean, is that a, is that an overstatement? Uh, God, I've never really thought about that. I know that their album really went crazy way over budget. Um, that's what you get when you record guitar chords one string at a time, you know? It takes a lot of fucking time. But it sounds great, right? That album is ridiculous. It, it sounds great. But what? listen, I remember seeing the video for women the first time and I'm, and I'm and i'm thinking wow it's been four years all right let's go and they play women on much music and i go i waited for that <laughs> mm. now mind you when pour some sugar on me comes out you go damn now we're in business but when i i, I remember looking at the women via going photograph huh. fooling blah 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 women mm. <laughs> Oh, dude. Oh. Yeah, I mean, Pyromania was on fire, literally. <laughs> You're giving me chills just thinking about that record. I just, yeah. first time I thought about that album in a while, but I remember hearing that for the first time, just getting my mind blown. Right? What a barn burner. Yeah, melodically and production-wise and those harmonies and, oh, it's Jesus. And Rick's drumming. And, and then he went on to drum with one only one arm. It's like, what the arm. hell? Yeah. Awesome. And you got Mutt Lang and, and, and I mean, come yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and when the, when Hysteria comes out, I will say this, and I've said it since 1987, they picked the wrong first single. It just was not. <laughs> Which, what did they do for the first single? In North America, they picked women as the first single. Oh, right. Yeah. And yeah. It, and it was just like, that, that ain't rocking. Yeah. It was a little disappointing that one, right? So, 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 was were you caught up in record company politics where the album was, they were sort of treading water with it, and and the record company just went, listen, sorry, Dan and other people, we just don't yeah, have time for you. I'm sure that was, I'm sure that was happening. You know, somebody said in Paul, in Paul Stanley's autobiography uh -huh. that came out a couple of years ago that he mentions the Dan Reed Network. He says that he actually said that uh, Kiss took a hit. With getting promotion money because the label was interested in in bands like uh banana rama and dan reed network he said in the way, I, so having it, interviewed it, you now i have now interviewed both banana rama and you so thank you <laughs> so and i love banana rama i thought this music was great um mm -hmm. but paul stanley thinks that new bands were taking money away from promoting the you know legend bands right and now you're saying that Def Leppard, which was like post Kiss but pre us, <laughs> yeah, was overtaxing us, getting money. It's probably all going on all the time with these record companies. God only knows. But I do know they were hitting a wall with funk radio not wanting to play us and rock radio not understanding us, and they were hitting a wall with a lot of that stuff. I mean, you take a song like "Get to You," yep, "Ritual," "Taming the Wild Nights." They're all kind of like. Where do you put that back in 1988, you know? Yeah, which is strange, though, because a lot of bands, and I'm not going to say Aerosmith is funk, but you listen to what Tom Hamilton's doing on bass, 
Yeah. And it's not just a straight bass line. I mean, he's got a, he's got some soul and some, I mean, you know. Oh, man, Sweet Emotion. Sweet is Emotion. One of my favorite funky songs, you know. And, and yeah. I mean, there's countless Aerosmith songs. People, uh, I didn't mention it today, but usually uh, when I'm having interviews with folks and talk about what are the first bands that inspired you, Aerosmith yeah. always comes up because they're, uh, they're a real funk rock band. They they are. Listen to that rhythm section. You take out Joey Kramer and Tom Hamilton, and ninety percent of the Aerosmith songs fall apart because it's based yeah. on that foundation. Yep. Yeah. Walk this way. Walk this way. That. All of them. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's hear it for the King. It is uh, originally slated for March. Now it is set for June seventeenth. Yeah, because our tour had to be rescheduled during these. There were still some COVID rules that were overlapping in Europe over here. Um, so they tried to, we thought it'd be smarter for everybody because if one crew member or one band member catches it, we, the tour is canceled. Right. Otherwise we have to live in a bubble where you don't get to say hi to anybody, um, including your merch guy. Cause he's out in contact with the audience. And yep. so you have a middleman to the merch person and it's ridiculous. And I don't, I, I like touring for the fun of it. I think it's a great time to be on the road and connect with people. Yep. slap their hands and visit with people afterwards and sign stuff and take photos. I love all that whole process. So if we couldn't do any of that, then we were doing it just for the money. And yeah. it's, it, it's a weird conundrum because just sitting at home sucks, but yeah. getting out on the road and not being able to be on the road in the traditional yeah. sense sucks. Absolutely. So <laughs> yeah. So I just made my sucky home time more creative. So I'm, <laughs> I'm painting and learning, you know, VFX stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, hey, listen. Um, what can I say? Uh, merci beaucoup, as we say here in Montreal. Uh, head over to the Dan Reed Network uh, website. You can uh, pick up the uh, CD along with a hoodie and a King T-shirt. Look at this. this. This merch is fantastic. Box set stuff, too, yeah. Yeah, it's the stuff. And I'm, I'm currently writing handwritten lyrics for all the songs that are going to go into the some of the box sets. There's 13 songs, so 13 box sets people are going to get lucky like the golden ticket and willy wonka oh i hope i oh did i get a, oh no i think i just got the the regular cd but whatever uh, let's see here and uh, of course uh, the next classic is going to be the uh, before last song unfuck my world there you go oh you like that one i like that one too no i, I listen to uh, starlight uh, this morning just before we we actually got on i was playing it and i got to starlight supernova let's hear it for the king and i see angels that run of songs which is three four five six <sighs> You know, perfect. I'm oh, sure. man. I can't wait till you hear uh, Homegrown is my favorite song on the record, oddly enough. Oh, here, I'll, 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 let me pop it in. That's one hear. that Brian and I wrote together. Look at that. Listen to that. Hold on. Start off as a Brian track. and There you go. It's funky. Oh, that is that is fantastic. And, um, yeah, listen, if you if you ha if you don't know the band and, and you, for example, love Extreme, You'll love this. And your voice is just, it it has held up. I don't know what you did, but it, it's held up. I mean, you uh, know. Cigarettes, little vodka every other <laughs> couple of weekends, you know. <laughs> That's the plan. Uh, Dan, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Hope you enjoyed this. I had a great time chatting. Anytime we want to do this, I'm up for it, brother. Absolutely. You, you just reach out or have a, a Peter reach out and we'll do it. Yeah. And I hope fact, you come back. I just would like to say I hope we get to we get messages from time to time. People asking if we're ever coming to Canada to play, you know. And I would love that to happen. So me um, too. I thank you for spreading the word. Maybe that's going to help us uh, make that a reality. 
And, and, I, and I'll, I'll throw this out here. My uh, my co-host, who's uh, generally uh, here, he's the number one DJ in Montreal, top 40, the whole wow. thing. He wow. really, really wanted to talk to you, but his grandmother is 85 or whatever, and she, had, she actually had an appointment this morning. He had to take her to it. But since the album comes out in June, let's do another one, like in end of May, and we'll get Absolutely. we'll get the three of us on here. I'm on it. I'd, I'd be happy to do that. Yeah, and let let Peter know. I'll let Peter know because uh, Jeremy really wanted to talk to you, but he's like, dude, I, I have an appointment with my grandma. I can't get out of it. It's nine in the because we normally tape at two. Ah, uh, yeah, gotcha. Understood. So I can like, do that. The ne next time I can do two o'clock. Your time is uh, eleven p.m. My time, no problem. Perfect. Well, let's 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 do that, and let, let's let's replug this in May. Okay, you know, you'll get so a, a, might, a double dose at eleven o'clock at night. I might have smoked half a bowl, so maybe we have an we can start talking about aliens and stuff. <laughs> That'll be perfect. Merci, Monsieur. Thank <laughs> you, sir. An all-new episode of the Mitchell Fun and Jeremy White Show Tuesday at noon. Available wherever you stream. Catch up on past interviews, bonus content, and episodes on demand now. Visit youtube.com slash Jeremy White Show. Follow Mitch and Jeremy on Twitter. Yeah, they're verified. At Mitch LaFon and at Jeremy White MTL.